Steve, who's a member of our congregation here, is going to bring us our Bible reading. Thank you. We're reading from Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. If you'd like to follow it, it's page 1178 in the church Bibles. Page 1178. Paul's shifting his focus at this point. In the first part of the letter, he's been speaking about his relationship with the Philippians and praying for them. And now he switches to talk about his situation. And that's where we pick it up in verse 12. Because he's in prison, and clearly the Philippians are concerned. So he's responding to that concern in what he's saying now. Philippians 1.12. Now, I want you to know, sisters and brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will always have sufficient courage, so that now and always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thanks, Steve. Do keep that open in front of you, and uh, we're going to continue our uh, walk together through uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. When we started our little series uh, last week, we were reflecting on the power of letters, that rare these days, perhaps even dying art of picking up a pen and actually writing something on paper. And uh, we were talking about the power that a letter written from the heart 
uh, between friends can have and how long they can last in our memories and what an impact they can have. And uh, we talked about the fact that Paul uh, was writing in around about AD 60, um, almost certainly uh, from, uh, well, we know, uh, imprisoned, possibly under house arrest, probably from Rome, to a group of people that he'd met around 10 years earlier as he had arrived in Philippi, as he'd founded the church, as he had established uh, a first sort of group of believers there and had been back to visit them maybe two or three times since. And now he's in prison. He's very grateful for the fact they've sent a gift to him and he is writing to them partly to say thank you for that, partly to reassure them about how he is, but also and especially to build up their faith, to build into them resilience because he knows that opposition will come and faithfulness to Jesus. And there is this wonderful note um, of joy that runs through this whole book. Last time, uh, as we were looking at the first 11 verses, what we call the first 11 verses, um, just the start of his letter, um, we were seeing that where Paul starts is with identity. His first few words are all about who he is and who they are, and therefore who we are. He talks about being a slave of Christ and that they are saints in Christ Jesus. And both whether you're a slave or whether you're a saint, both words have very similar sort of center of gravity, which is that you belong. If you're a slave, you belong, if you like, literally to someone else. You are their property. If you're a saint, it's a word that in the Bible means set apart, belonging to, wholly theirs. A slave, a saint, we belong. And he talks about how they, he and they live out that belonging uh, in terms of their generosity to him, in terms of their resilience in the face of hardship, and in terms of living uh, a wise and godly and blameless life. That's how he's kicked his letter off. He says, you need to know who you are. You belong to Jesus. You are his slave, which sounds difficult and harsh until you realize just a few sentences later in his letter, we'll come to it in a couple of weeks' time, that Jesus effectively became a slave to and for us. We give everything to the one who's already given everything for us. We're his saints. That means we've been set apart. We belong to him, and therefore we live out of that identity. And then we come, as Steve's uh, mentioned to us, we come to a part of a letter where he, he sort of turns from them back to himself. And it's only a brief bit of this letter. This isn't a letter of moaning. This isn't a letter of sort of self-centeredness. This isn't a letter which I would write if I were in prison, where I'd be going, this is terrible, get me out of here, it's horrible, I shouldn't be. I mean, I could write you my letter that this would be, but no, Paul doesn't do that. He is uh, under arrest. He is imprisoned for something that is entirely unjust. He's probably in fairly difficult circumstances. And yet actually his focus isn't on him. But for a few sentences, he does talk about his imprisonment. But he does so with an incredible note of joy, a recurring note of joy. If you, I don't know if you, if you listen to music, whether it's uh, music that might be in the charts or music that you might play with an orchestra, one of the things that happens an awful lot of music is that sense of a recurring theme, something that sort of threads a piece together. It might be a, a few notes that recur. It might be a, a, um, a, a key signature it keeps returning to. It might be a rhythm, but something that just says, don't forget, this is what we are. This is who we are. This is what this piece is about. And in Philippians, and particularly in these few verses, the note is joy. 
the part that Steve's just read for us breaks up into two halves. Verses 12 to the first part of verse 18 has Paul looking to his recent past and his present, effectively saying to him, these are my circumstances. This is what's happened to me. This is what is happening to me. And he finishes that with the note of joy, um, halfway through verse 18. And because of this, I rejoice. And then in the second half, from the second half of verse 18 through to the end of verse 26, it's about his future. He's basically said, look, this is what's happened to me. This is what is happening to me. And now let me tell you about what I think about my future. And his future is sort of surrounded by two arms and their arms of joy. It begins with joy. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. And then it ends with joy. Verse 25, I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Jesus Christ. There is this note of joy. He looks to his past. He's been arrested. That's actually a big deal, far bigger than we might even begin to imagine. It's a big deal because of what being arrested in those days and in that part of the world would have meant. It didn't mean particularly a safe environment. It didn't mean an environment where you would be necessarily fed, where a place would be warm enough. I know, ironic, sitting in a cold church, but there wouldn't be a sense of, you know, blankets and a heater or, you know, food to go down and get in the canteen. You were pretty much on your own. And unless people sent you food and looked after you from on outside, you were entirely vulnerable. But also, if you think about it, Paul's job, more than just his job, his entire calling, his entire life was about being on the move. He was an apostle. He was a roving apostle. It was like saying to a footballer, we're going to tie your legs together. Like saying to a concert pianist, we're going to tie your hands behind your back. Here was Paul, whose entire raison d'etre, his entire life was about traveling around that part of the world, telling people the good news of Jesus. And he was under house arrest. He tells them about how he's got to where he's got to. He tells them about his current circumstances. And as he looks to his future, he acknowledges what they would know, but he says it out loud effectively. And this could mean that he dies. This isn't simply about how long might he be in prison for. This is the question of will he be put to death? So whether you look at his current circumstances and how he's got there, or whether you look to his future, it's pretty bleak. But actually, we've only got one question to ask this morning. How on earth, why on earth, can Paul talk of joy in the midst of that? How on earth, why on earth, can Paul talk of joy in the midst of that? I've been thinking about it a lot this week. And it seems to me that there's a few possible explanations that if you just said it as baldly as that, here's somebody in these circumstances and they're joyful, that we might assume. Uh, one is denial. Uh, I think I'm fairly good at denial. Uh, it's got me out of a few scrapes in life, but generally it more gets me into trouble. I, as a um, teenager and as a student, I was very good at denial when it came to deadlines. I think my staff team and colleagues would say I'm still pretty good at denial about deadlines. Um, I, I really can ride right up to the minute that something's due, and it doesn't terribly stress me or traumatize me. Um, denial can be quite useful. Of course, denial isn't very useful when the thing that we're in denial of is as potentially life-changing as what Paul was going through. 
It's no good being in denial when you're rotting away in prison, when you're meant to be out there spreading the good news. It's no good being in denial when your future might involve execution. It's no good being in denial when the reality that's facing you won't just go away on its own. You know, there is nothing in the Bible that says that being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is about whistling a happy tune and pretending that everything's lovely. We're not meant to be those who are in denial about the brutal, sometimes messy, pretty much always, reality of life. You don't have to read very much of the Bible to find that it's there on virtually every page. The reality of human life lived out in all its messiness. Yes, it's glory and it's beauty and it's happiness and it's love and friendship, but also it's seeming brutality and at times awfulness and difficulty and fearfulness. It's one of the reasons that when we gather, we often pray because we want to pray into the reality of our world. We've prayed this morning about two big realities that we're facing that no Christian should be in denial of. On the one hand, the reality of climate change and what's happening in our environment and the human uh, part of that. And on the other hand, uh, what's happening in our democracy and in our parliament and in our communities. Neither of those realities are things we should be in denial about. And I don't believe for one moment that Paul is in denial about his suffering and potential future. So if it's not denial, and he clearly doesn't seem to be in denial, he's writing about it pretty openly, what else could it be? Well, for some, having this sort of attitude to suffering can come out of a somewhat warped view of what being faithful to a cause can mean. A sort of martyr complex. You've probably met them at some point in life. Those who actually take some sort of warped pride in being on the receiving end of rough times. It's almost the more that life is against them, the more they must be doing the right thing. I, most of us have done it at some point, and it, it's a sort of defense mechanism. It basically says, if everything's going wrong, and if everybody's against me, that must mean I'm right. Now, of course, sometimes that's true, but oftentimes it really isn't. If you're driving the wrong way down a road, just because everybody else is driving against you doesn't mean that you are the, the sole one person who's got it right. Actually, it just means you've taken a wrong turn. Paul doesn't glory in his suffering in the sense of wearing it as a badge of something he's achieved. There is a subtlety in this because there are places in Paul's writing where he wears it as a badge of honor that God has counted him worthy of suffering because he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus suffered, who am I not to? I get to take part, in a sense, in a little bit of what he has gone through. But there isn't a sense of, well, hey, I'm suffering. If you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, you find Paul there in really quite a dark place in the midst of suffering. Not happy about it, not glorying in it, but really weighed down by it. That's not where his joy comes from. Neither from denial, nor in some sort of warped taking pleasure in it. Actually, where his joy comes from, most of all, is in his confidence in the God who holds the universe together. And as he has confidence in him, he's able to see very clearly with the eyes that Jesus gives him his suffering in a different light. 
He sees a reality that others maybe can't see. Part of that reality, we see it there in the first few verses, verses 12 to 14, has to do with the fact that he recognizes that in his suffering and in how he deals with his suffering, he has great influence on others. He has great influence on others. Now, I want you to know, sisters and brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 14, because of my chains, most of the sisters and brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. He doesn't underestimate the impact that his imprisonment and that how he's dealing with it is having on other Christians. And actually, is having on those outside the church looking in. He's able to see beyond his own experience to the impact, the influence that his life is having on others. Now, you and I aren't world-renowned apostles. Uh, We may not be appearing on TV. We may not be commanding crowds of thousands. But it would woe betide us if we were to underestimate the influence that our lives, our lives of faith, and yes, how we respond to the difficulties of life can have on others. I mean this, what I'm about to say positively, though you may hear it negatively, you are being watched, I am being watched, all the time. If you're a parent, you're definitely being watched by your kids. If you're a neighbor, if you're in work, if you're a friend, you're being watched by the people that you live around that you live with, that you work with. And the way that you respond to the difficult parts of life, perhaps more than anything else, has an influence on other people. Paul was able to look at his suffering, was able to see with God's eyes that the way that he was responding to being imprisoned for his faith was actually serving to inspire to encourage, to motivate others to tell the good news. He could see that. I've had many people over the years here be able to give testimony to the way in which God has used the way that they have been able to walk through difficult times in life to impact others for good. Don't miss out on that possibility that your life influences others. In fact, let me put it a different way. Don't, live out, don't miss out on the fact that your life influences others and don't miss out on the possibility that God can use it to influence others for good. So his faith in Jesus gives him eyes to see his influence, but secondly, his faith in Jesus gives him a singular purpose. Here is a man, as you read this letter, who has one singular focus in life, one singular purpose above all others, and it's simply the good news of Jesus the gospel. Gospel means good news. His life is about good newsing, speaking it out, living it out, being it for others. It's what feeds in to what we read in verse 15 through to the beginning of verse 18. This astonishing um, ability that Paul has to see even those who are somehow preaching Christ in order to get him into more trouble through that lens which says, yes, but they are preaching Christ, so hallelujah. Now, I don't think I've got that in me, or at least I don't have it in me easily. I think my guts would be to think about how it's affecting me. I think my guts would be, how dare they? Somebody go and shut them up. Somebody go and stop them. 
What a terrible motivation to preach Christ in order to get me into more trouble. But actually, he has such singular purpose that even in chains, he's able to say, what does it matter, verse 18? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yet again, as we talked about last week, Paul's joy comes not from his circumstances. Paul's joy comes not from his history. And as we're about to find out, Paul's joy comes not from his prospects. Paul's joy comes from knowing Jesus and being known and loved by him. But there is one thing more than anything else that gives him this ability to be a person of joy in the midst of suffering. And it's simply that he is convinced that there is someone who holds his life in his hands who loves him. Someone who holds his life in their hands who loves him. He's able to say that actually whatever happens, I believe it will work out, verse 19, for my deliverance. That's that salvation word. It's a word that means being saved, being rescued. And yet it's very clear from the sentences that come after that that he doesn't mean that he's guaranteeing without a shadow of doubt that he's not going to get put to death. He is sure that the God who loves him, who holds his life in his hands, will rescue him, will deliver him, will save him, because he knows he's loved, because he knows he's held, because he knows God is not just big enough, but loving enough and compassionate enough that he doesn't have to worry. But that joy comes not from knowing what the future holds, but if you don't mind a little bit of a cliched bit of dog rule, it's not about what the future holds, but who holds the future. It's not about guaranteeing he won't get put to death, but knowing that whether he's put to death or alive, this will be for his deliverance, for his rescue. And he's able, I think this is quite funny, I think it's quite humorous, it's quite lighthearted. He says, do you know what, I'd love to go and be with Jesus. But actually he said, I think I'm meant to stay here because I'm here for you. It's amazingly sort of light-hearted, sort of quite relaxed way of viewing potential execution. But it's because he doesn't know what the future holds, but he does know who holds that future. This is a thread that runs all the way through the scriptures with God's people. One of my favorite stories from the Old Testament is of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three of God's people who lived during the exile. And there is a great king, pagan king, uh, who is so convinced of his own importance that he creates a golden statue and they are meant to bow down and worship that golden statue as if it's God and they say to him no we won't there is only one God and it's not you and he says well I'm going to throw you into the brick furnaces and they heat the brick furnaces up so hot that even the gods are burnt up by it as they're meant to be taking Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego towards it. And he says, all you've got to do is bow down to that statue. And it's one of the most astonishing things, I think, in all of Scripture. What they say to him is this. We believe our God can save us. But even if he does not, we will still not bow down and worship you. Isn't this an astonishing... It's a beautiful, beautiful moment in the Bible. We believe our God can... But even if he does not, we will still not worship you because he's still God. What about Jesus himself? 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, if it is your will, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Is there another way? No. This is the route, even through it, even through death. Paul is able to say, I know God can save me. But even if he does not, he's still God. He still loves me. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's where his joy comes from. Joy is not about our history, not about our current circumstances, and it's not about pretending we know everything that's going to happen in the future. That's not what prayer does. Prayer isn't some sort of um, gold-plated guarantee of an easy life. What prayer does is it puts us in a place of saying to God, I know that you can, I pray that you will, and even if you don't, you are still God and you still love me. Paul's joy is threaded through Philippians. It's threaded through Philippians not because he was somehow in denial, putting his fingers in his ears, closing his eyes and whistling a happy tune. He knew he was in trouble. Paul simply knew Jesus. He knew that his life was safe in Jesus' hands. He knew that Jesus could save him. He, I suspect, prayed that he would save him. But even if he did not save him from execution, he knew that he would deliver him and rescue him even into the life of the world to come. That's where joy comes from. I know he can. I pray he will. But even if he doesn't, yet will I praise him. We're going to be coming to communion. And as we, uh, just in quietness, come to share it, it may well be that you've got something that you need to bring to Jesus, that you are longing for him to change. It might be something to do with your health or the health of another person. It might be to do with your future or the future of another person. It might be something that you're walking through right now, something you're fearful about in the future. We come with empty hands of faith to receive from Jesus that faith and confidence to be able to say to him, I know that you can, I pray that you will, and even if you don't do everything I hope you will do, thank you that you love me. Thank you that my life is safe in your hands.